Matthew 11. Thank you. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang at the dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a de demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, he is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, um, sorry. <laughs> Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens no, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Unbelief. Unbelief could be a one-word description to describe 15 or so faces as they trudged off the pitch yesterday wearing white shirts, some with blood upon them. Unbelief. How did that happen to us with all our preparation? Confidence, joy was there on many South African faces, faces who just played England off the park and just did a great job. But, but unbelief is there in the sporting realm. Unbelief is there when you go to the doctor's. And you get great news when you're expecting sad news. I often give doctors a hard time, so I'm being positive today. But it's also unbelief can be there when you think that you're going along and, and, and you're healthy and you're wealthy and you're wise and, and the doctor calls you in after a regular test and there's bad news. Unbelief. Unbelief is everywhere. It's there uh, physically, it's there in the sporting sense, it's there in terms of health, it's there in terms of the future. There's no way that any political party will sort out this mess. I just don't believe unbelief. Unbelief is uh, central to uh, Matthew chapter 11. We're moving slowly through this chapter and it was there, if you missed us last week, verse 3 of chapter 11, you've got John the Baptist. He's stuck in jail, chapter 4 tells us, and he's struggling with the reality that Jesus well, that Jesus has turned up. And so he asked the question, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? Are you the guy? Are you the real thing? We stole that from Coca-Cola last week. Are you the Messiah? Are you the one from heaven? Are you the one who God promised to send? Or is there someone else who's coming? I don't believe you. I'm troubled. We thought about this from verse uh, 6 from uh, chapter 11. John the Baptist was, was, there was a troubling in his spirit. He was uh, scandalized by what Jesus was saying and doing. 
And so Jesus said to his followers, go and tell John what is happening. Go and tell him that the poor are receiving the gospel. Go and tell him that the blind are seeing, that the lame are now walking. Go and tell him that. It's unbelief. It it saturates the chapter. And Jesus now turns his attention away from John the Baptist and to other people. And he begins to speak and describe the generation. He says, uh, to whom can I compare you lot? What are you like? And then he paints a picture. It's unbelief. It's an unbelieving generation that Jesus did all this evidence of his deity and his divinity, his character and his promises and his purposes and his future. And they did not believe in him. And they are just like you and me. We struggle to believe the promises of Jesus. We struggle to sing, blessed be your name and really mean it. Because when the bad news comes, we think, has God left us? Has he left the building? Has he left our lives? Because with the wind behind us, the wind of faith, then God should always bring good into our lives, never ill. We may struggle with uh, God's provision for our lives. We may struggle with his teaching. What about ethically? Well, I like this part of the Bible, but I really find this one hard. When my friends ask me about this stuff, sexual ethics, when uh, they ask me about gender roles, when they ask me about about, uh, different things, I find it so hard. It's easy to believe this Jesus, but it's very hard to believe this part of what Jesus said. Unbelief is everywhere. And Jesus exposes our hearts for what they are. He gets very close and personal. And he begins by saying, the power of unbelief, I believe. It's in sentence 21, point number one, the power of unbelief. Look at sentence 21 with me. Woe to you. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you, Capernaum. I did all sorts of miracles here, says Jesus, and yet you wouldn't believe. There are these three towns, says Jesus. I walked through them. I didn't just walk through them, I taught through them. And I demonstrated my power and majesty by doing miraculous deeds. And yet you lot, with all the evidence, I was right there in front of you. You heard my words, you saw my deeds, you saw my actions and my miracles, but you didn't believe. John, the apostle, says... If I wrote down every miracle John did, uh, Jesus did at the end of John's gospel, he says, there's not enough books in the whole of the known world. And what Matthew and what John are saying is this. Unbelief is not a lack of something that just needs to be filled up. It's the presence of something. Unbelief is not just a lack of something, it's the presence of something. Unbelief is not just a lack of faith because there's a lack of evidence. Jesus is saying, you had the evidence. You heard my words. You saw my deeds. You saw the miracles. And if you didn't see them, you were told about them. And yet, with all that evidence base, you still chose to not believe who I am. Unbelief is not just the absence of something. It's the presence of something. There's a positive power in your heart and my heart that goes against everything that Jesus says. That's why people, that's why your neighbours don't believe. Because they're not morally neutral, as you and I are not morally neutral. We are against the purposes and promises of God unless we become Christians. And even then we struggle to believe in God's goodness and his promises. Notice what Jesus does not say. He does not say, you three towns, you should believe because I told you to. He doesn't say, you should believe without asking any questions. He doesn't say, you should just believe, leave your brains at the door. Jesus doesn't say that. And neither does he say it to us today. Christians always think. Christians always reason. We want you, if you're not yet a Christian, if you're looking in, 
We want you to be thinking and asking good questions. But Jesus says, even if you had all the evidence, even if you were there, don't think that you're morally neutral and you're just lacking evidence. And if you were there and if you heard and if you saw, then you'd become a Christian. Jesus says that's not how it works. It's not just a lack of evidence. Put it this way. I was in Nescot just last month and I was uh, speaking to a, a guy who's an atheist, really good, respectful young man. And uh, he was saying, uh, yeah, but there's just not enough evidence for Jesus. I knew, I was, I knew that this passage was coming up, so I turned to it. Uh, it was bad luck for him. And, uh, but, and I just said, but here's the thing. Jesus did so much evidence. He uh, walked the streets of Jerusalem. He walked around Capernaum. He did so many miracles, there's not enough books for them to be written down. The internet would go bust. Google's computers would explode. They did that many. Jesus does not just give us a watertight uh, argument. He is a watertight person. It's the person of Jesus that we fight against. It's an issue of authority and power. And he said, oh yeah, but if Jesus were here today, no, 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 that's not how it works. If Jesus were here in front of us today and just imagine that my hand had been cut off in a car accident and I, ha I had it with me still, and, and somehow Jesus, by a word of miraculous power, put my hand back on and it just started to work again. The blood was flowing, the sinews were working, the bones were working, the tissue was there. Would you believe then? Yeah, but that could be magic. Get my point? It's not just about evidence. There is something in our hearts that has a power of unbelief that pushes back against the authoritative teaching of Jesus, against his person and against his work. So that even if Jesus were here this morning, physically, he's here by his spirit, we believe. But even if he were here physically and we saw the hands in his, uh, the holes in his hands and the cut in his side, the blood stains on his feet, that wouldn't be enough. Because there's something in our hearts that pushes against the authoritative claims of Jesus. It's not just the absence of something, there is a presence of something. It's uh, the power of unbelief that's in our spirits. So don't flatter yourself if you're looking in at Christianity that uh, I just need to understand. I don't understand enough. I've not been to church enough. I've not heard the right messages. I've not read the right books. It's not just an issue of understanding, says Jesus. There is a power. There's a power to unbelief. It's not just about information. I said to this young man in Nescott, it's about revelation. We are spiritually blind and deaf and dumb. And until God reveals himself to us, our unbelief will win. Our unbelief is like a teenage boy. It's just hungry all the time for evidence. But it's not just about information. It's about revelation. It's the power of unbelief. That's not where Jesus ends. He talks about the character of unbelief in verses 16 and 19. Look at those sentences with me, please. It's the character of unbelief, point number two. There's something going on that's kept Chorazin and Bethsaida from seeing who Jesus is. Look at 16 and 19. Let me tell you what it is. I've told you that it is. Now I'm going to tell you something about it. Let me tell you about you lot, you generation, says Jesus. They're like children in the marketplaces, calling out to one another, says Jesus. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John the Baptist came near either eating or drinking and they said, he's got a demon in him. The son of man came both eating and drinking and they said of him, he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax cleaners, tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her actions. The overarching picture of what it means to be a Christian in the Gospel of Matthew is one of adoption. 
You're a child of God when you become a Christian. And so you have this wonderful relationship with God as your father. You see it there in Matthew 5 through 7. You pray to God, our father in heaven. Which of your fathers on earth will treat you like this? Therefore, your father in heaven will treat you like this. The wonderful reality of becoming a Christian, no matter what your own personal nuclear extended family experience is like, is that God is a good, good father. Matthew and all the gospel writers want to say that to us. Christians are childlike. But Jesus now says the issue with this generation is you are childish. You're childlike if you're a Christian. You trust God. You grow in confidence and dependency as a young two-year-old trusts their mum or dad as they fell down the stairs this morning at quarter to seven. That was just a home. You are childlike. You recognise that you are not uh, sufficiently wise to run your own life. That's a mercy when you realise that. You realise that you are arrogant and haughty and proud. God brings you low. That's a mercy. You're childlike. You're dependent on God, your heavenly Father. But this generation, Jesus says, is, is childish. There's this picture that's painted in sentence 16 and 17 that's very important. Teenagers, you're in your 7, 8, 9, 10 and beyond. Imagine a world before the internet. Is there a gasp? Imagine the world that was black and white. I can remember that. Imagine the world without PS2, Fortnite, Tinternet, Tinterweb, all those things. Um, no Nintendo, no... Can you imagine a world like that? What would you do? I'd have to go outside. That's a terrible thought. You'd have to enjoy the outside world. But imagine what is being described here. Look at uh, sentence 17. What are the two main social events where you could have fun as a child in the first century? Only two big events, no fireworks, not invented yet in this part of the world. The two places where you could have a great time is weddings, sentence 17 says, and funerals. Weddings and funerals, they would come round on a monthly basis, you, you perhaps surmise, in the first century, and you could have a great time. You could have a great time uh, enjoying, mucking around at, at weddings, but when it came to funerals, there would be women wailing, professional <coughs> wailers, but even a, a funeral, that could be an opportunity to play and muck around in. Jesus says this, you generation, you unbelieving generation, to what can I compare you? I'm going to compare you not to childlike Christians. I'm going to compare you to childish first century children. So imagine the scene where parents in the first century are going down to the marketplace to buy what you need. Aldi had not been invented yet. Neither had Lidl, neither had Sainsbury's and all the other establishments. They go down to the marketplace to buy food and livestock and cattle. And the children are playing. There's three groups of children. One is saying, right, we've got free time, cat's away, children can play. Let's, I'm going to play a song. Let's pretend it's a wedding. I'm the groom. Here comes the bride. I'm going to play. I'm going to play wedding. I don't want to play that, says the other group. I want to play funeral. I'm going to play a dirge on my flute. I don't want to play wedding. I don't want to play funeral. I want to play something else. And what Jesus is describing is an issue of power. In my heart, in your heart, in these children's experiences of not getting on. I want to play wedding. I want to play funeral. I don't like that tune. I don't like that tune. I want to play my own tune. Why do children and why do adults always say that? It's because we want to sing like Frank Sinatra did. I want to do things my way. It's about power. 
There's a reason under the reason of, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge for you and you did not mourn. You don't want to play funeral. You don't want to play wedding. Why not? Because you want the power. There's a reason under the reasons. Here's the evidence, Jesus says, the nature of unbelief, the nature of your struggle with Christianity at the bottom level will not be evidence, will not be the truthfulness of the Bible, and it is true, will not be the reality of creation or redemption. The issue is one of power. You don't want to submit. I don't want to submit. If what Jesus says is true, I'm going to lose all my power. If what Jesus says is true, I lose authority over my life. If what Jesus says is true, you fill in the gap. I lose authority over my life because of who Jesus says he is. He has supreme authority. He's number one. That's the reason under all our problems. It's a power struggle. It's a power struggle. I don't like that tune. I don't like that tune either. I like my tune. And I want to do things my way. Unbelief. It's not about evidence. It's a need for revelation. It's not about uh, Jesus being here or being there 2,000 years ago. It's about a power struggle that says we want control of our own lives. It's the character. It's the nature of unbelief. Thirdly, Jesus doesn't just say this power and this character of unbelief. He says there's a solution for unbelief. How can people believe if this power is so strong, if if it's a power struggle in our hearts? There is a solution. This is a, I, I took a photo of my own bicep and just put it up on the screen, and then I enlarged it. Thank you, Livia, for laughing too heartily. What's the solution if there is this power in our hearts? This is a message not just for non-Christians, it's there in our hearts as well. Christianity, like any ethical framework, like any philosophy, it's unlike any of them because it's utterly realistic Christianity. It's, uh, at the same time, it's very pessimistic. It's realistic about the power of my own uh, will to run my own life. But it's also utterly optimistic when Jesus gets involved. Look at sentence 18. John came to you not eating or drinking. Here's John. He's kind of described as a severe man. He has the message of repent and believe. Repent, you need a saviour. You cannot rescue yourselves. You need someone to come in. And rescue you. That was John's message. So John, he represents the dirge. He's kind of the funeral guy. He's the bad news man. But sentence 19, along comes Jesus. I came eating and drinking. I came talking of grace. I came to say I've come to bring a feast. And you accuse me of being a glutton and a wine bibber. A wine drinker. Which way is it? Your issue is one of power. You don't want the bad news, you don't want the good news. Friends, if we hold out the biblical gospel, the same accusation will be thrown at me and you even today. The bad news of the gospel, in case you've never heard it, is that you are more wicked than you ever dreamt of. You're more wicked than you know or even think on your most honest day. You're worse than that. But when God gets involved... When you see that you need a saviour, when you see that you can't rescue yourself, when you see that there is one way to the Father and his name is Jesus, you realise that the negative part of the gospel message is actually the greatest starting point ever. It's the beginning of the good news that we are deeply wicked and rebellious against God, our loving Heavenly Father. We're sinful. That's not just an old word. It's a true word throughout the ages. And it's a hard word. 
but it's a word that we need to keep. But when you've heard the bad news, when you grasp that, when you're humbled by that, when you're uh, honest and realistic about yourselves, you then are ready for the great news of the gospel, that Jesus does not love good people. There are no good people in heaven. There are rescued wicked people in heaven because God loves to save people like that, like me. The uh, determining factor in your relationship with your Father, your Heavenly Father, is not what you do, it's what Jesus has done. It's all that he's achieved. It's all that he's won. I'm saved not because of how hard I work. I'm saved because of grace. It's the great news of the gospel. And because I'm totally saved by grace, there's nothing that God cannot ask of me. That's simultaneously encouraging and really frightening. If your religion is, oh, I'm going to try my best, it's a quid pro quo relationship with God as a, as a father. He doesn't have to be a father when you transact with God like that. I'm a citizen. I'm a power player. This is what I've done. I'm a spiritual taxpayer. But then comes the gospel like smelling salts and says, here's a reality check. You cannot rescue yourself. God is far greater. He's far higher. He's far more pure. He owes you nothing. We owe him everything. If you're saved by grace, here's the problem. You lose the power. That's why on Christianity Explored, grace is the hardest week. You see the penny dropping when people say, this is offensive to me, because you're saying I can't rescue myself. That's exactly what Christianity says. You need a rescuer. The issue underneath it all is we want to save ourselves because we want the power. And in comes Jesus with the gospel who says, no, it's all of grace. You cannot save yourself. But then we have strange sentence 19. What is that doing there? Wisdom is proved right by her actions. Very strange for Jesus just to put that on the end there. I mean, why does Jesus call wisdom a her anyway? Why doesn't Jesus just say wisdom is proved right by its actions? Kind of strange sentence. And then it's doubly strange because Jesus personifies wisdom and then he calls wisdom a her. What's all that about? Back in the Old Testament, in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 8, there's a very interesting description of lady wisdom. Lady wisdom who stands at the end of a, a high street and calls with the wisdom of God to rescue people from damnation, from destruction. And this, uh, this lady wisdom, this person who's personified, is, is poetic. But it's a very important role in the whole Bible. It's uh, God calling out, say, I was there. Lady wisdom was there at the creation of the world. Lady Wisdom is there in everyday life. By your side, Lady Wisdom will be there at the end. So Lady Wisdom is throughout history. And then John, in John's Gospel, he speaks of wisdom in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word, the wisdom of God. All things were created through him. Without him, nothing was created that has been created You've got lady wisdom and then Jesus saying, I'm the wisdom of God. See, wisdom, wisdom is not just a thing. It's not a collection of books. You can have the uh, Google plugged into your head, but not be wise. You just have information and knowledge. And Jesus is saying this, I am the wisdom of God. I'm the wisdom of God. And if you know me, you can hold that the sorrows of life, the dirge of life and the joys of life, the weddings of life. You can hold those two things together and only in me. You may arrogantly think that you are competent to run your own life. 
But eventually wisdom will come through and dispel that, that lie. You will see that you're out of touch with reality. See, Christianity is so realistic. Christianity really is like smelling salts. It gives us a reality check every time. We are sinners, we're rebels, we're lost without God. No other religion says that. It says you're good. It says you can achieve great things. If you try hard enough, you can find God and go to the right place at the right time. Christianity says you can't. You're absolutely lost. And you need God in his mercy to reach out and rescue you. The problem of the age is not in Whitehall. It's not the NHS needing more and more money, and it does. It's not education being tinkered with. It's with the next government, and it will be. The problem's in here. And Christianity is the only religion that says that. It brings us to our senses. And when we see Jesus as the wisdom of God personified, wisdom is a person, not a thing. It enables us to run and not grow weary. It enables us to walk and not grow faint. Wisdom's not there that you just need to reach out and, and kind of get the download, get the latest, get the thing. Wisdom is a person who calls to us and his name is Jesus. Because on the cross, you see these two great realities come together. The wisdom of God on display, damning the wisdom of humanity. You see the holiness of God and the love of God. Instead of being in tension, pulling against each other, you see them being intricately woven together. God pouring out his wrath on his son so that his holiness is completely and utterly satisfied. But his love being satisfied by pouring out his grace on us who don't deserve it. And only Jesus, the wisdom of God on display, makes those two things possible. Wisdom is proved right by her children. Wisdom in relationship, wisdom as harmony, wisdom in flesh, called Jesus. Let's pray.